Hi, guys, and welcome back to The Climate Lawyer, a podcast about the business and law of climate change for lawyers, people who work in the industry, and the climate curious. I'm your host, Rich Kim, an American lawyer at Clifford Chance, Germany, and member of our firm's Climate M&A team. And it looks like this will be our last episode of this series, but we'll get to that at the end of the episode. In the meantime, uh, we're going to be discussing today a really important UN resolution that was passed and Clifford Chance's work on that. So we have here for this episode, Janet and Carla from our firm and Sam from the Vance Center. Um, would you guys like to briefly uh, introduce yourselves? Hi, Rich. Great to be here. This is Janet Whitaker. I'm based in Washington, D.C. and uh, delighted to be here today to talk about the work that we've been doing over the past several years, as, as well as this really important development that you're going to address. Hi, Rich. Hi, Janet. Hi, Sam. Um, I'm Carla Lewis. I'm from the London team at Clifford Chance. So I'm a senior associate uh, specialising in arbitration, economic sanctions and uh, climate change risk. Hi there, I'm Sam Bookman. I'm a staff attorney in the Environment Programme at the Cyrus Vance Centre for International Justice. And we're a nonprofit based in New York that has worked very closely with Clifford Chance on this issue and many others. Great. Thanks very much for, for being here, guys. And so um, getting right into it, on um, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution recognizing the universal human right to a healthy and sustainable environment on July 28th of this year. So what is the right to a healthy environment and, and why is it important from your guys' perspective? So this resolution that was passed on July 28th, it's really a landmark resolution. It's the first time that the right to a healthy environment has been recognized at an international level. And the right specifically addresses a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. And what is really interesting about the General Assembly resolution aside from the fact that it's this sort of initial time that this right has been recognised, is that it was passed with overwhelming support. So it was adopted by 161 member states with no countries voting against it, but eight member states abstaining. The resolution itself, it calls upon states, international organisations, businesses and other stakeholders to scale up efforts to achieve a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. So that's on top of actually specifically stating that this right is one that should be uh, enjoyed by humans across the world. It's based on a very similar text that was adopted by the UN Human Rights Council in October 2021. And that was really a time when within the human rights context, the right to a healthy environment was first formally recognized. The resolution also, we can get to this a little bit later, it notes that the right is related to other rights, um, which is relatively non-controversial and something that had really been discussed in previous work done with, under the UN's auspices, but also other existing international law. And it particularly ties this right to the implementation of the multilateral environmental agreements. And, and this is an issue that perhaps it might be interesting to talk about a little bit later about the different views, even though we have this single resolution recognizing this right, how there are different views of, of really what it means more generally. Thanks. And I, I'm actually so glad that, that you guys are 
is specifically highlighting this in today's episode. You know, I think in between the sort of goings on of the past few years, whether it's the pandemic, the war that we have in Europe, whether it's kind of been the focus on the climate legislation in the in the U.S. with the um, Inflation Reduction Act, folks would be forgiven for maybe not uh, focusing on this so much. But I think it's it's great that you all are have been working on this and are sort of focused on bringing this action about. Maybe, Rich, if I can add another point, just by way of background. So obviously, as you've pointed out, we have climate legislation at a domestic level, an environmental legislation, and many countries across the world have such legislation. But never, it's really interesting that this right to a healthy environment, which is critical in some ways to protecting people's human rights as they face environmental degradation or the effects of climate change, it has never actually been recognized in a treaty and it has never been recognized under customary international law. I know a lot of people would be surprised by that, but that was really why this resolution was such a, you know, a change in the international framework as it relates to the environment. And just adding to that, perhaps, I think one of the significant things about this resolution is that at the time that the international human rights framework as we know it today was really being created through the through treaties like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the environment was not really on the global agenda there. So in many ways, the environment was left out of some of the key cornerstone uh, multilateral treaties that underpin the international human rights system. So a big part of what this resolution is about is as being part of a much broader process to bring environmental concerns up to that level of some of the other environmental or some of the other human rights um, that are that are widely recognized across the world. And then maybe digging into sort of the the process here more around the work that was done here is so you guys worked with both UN special rapporteurs for kind of many years on this project, along with the Vance Center, Sam, where you're from. Can you guys tell us about that work and the process here? So the Human Rights Council actually established the mandate for the independent experts on human rights and the environment in 2012. And Professor John Knox was appointed the first independent expert on human rights obligations relating to the enjoyment of a safe, clean, healthy and sustainable environment for a three-year term at that point. And together with the Vance Centre, I started working for Professor Knox shortly after he was appointed. And the Human Rights Council at the time had specifically requested that the independent experts study the human rights obligations relating to the enjoyment of a safe, clean, healthy and sustainable environment. And Professor Knox undertook an extensive research project to map the statements made by key sources on the human rights obligations relating to the environment. And so we assisted him in actually drawing up reports individual reports describing statements made by global human rights treaties and their application by treaty bodies. So, for example, the rights arising on, under different UN treaties, whether it relates to discrimination or um, economic, uh, social, cultural rights. So we looked at all of the 
body of law, as it were, at the time to identify where statements had been made about how the rights in those instruments related to the environment and actually provided protection in the context of environmental pollution. And so Professor Knox presented his findings in a mapping report in March 2014. And in that report, he described the various human rights obligations that related to the environment. And these rights included procedural obligations. And so those kinds of obligations are the obligations on states to assess environmental impacts on human rights, to, for example, make environmental information public and to facilitate the participation by citizens and interested parties in decision making and to provide access to remedies for harm. He also outlined the substantive obligations of states. So what kinds of legal and institutional frameworks states should adopt to protect against environmental harm that interferes with the enjoyment of human rights. And he also looked at specifically um, you know, vulnerable groups. And these vulnerable groups include women, children and indigenous peoples and what kinds of obligations states hold relating to the protection of those groups. And his mandate was extended in, in March 2015. And it, at that point, he actually moved from being an independent expert to being a special rapporteur. And during his tenure, he produced a number of other consequential reports, including on children's rights and the environment. And he compiled a set of frame, framework principles on human rights and the environment. And then just sort of finishing the sort of process point in 2018, the Human Rights Council further extended the mandate, really in recognition of the importance of this issue. And they appointed Dr. David Boyd as a special rapporteur. And again, Clifford Chance had the opportunity to work with the Vance Centre to support Dr. Boyd in, in connection with his mandate. And I think that Carla was going to tell us a little bit more about the work that we did alongside Dr. Boyd. Yeah, of course. So um, as a firm, we were approached by the Vance Centre of this particular project back in December 2018. So together we were being asked by Dr. Boyd to undertake a comprehensive study of the extent to which the right to a healthy environment is actually recognised in domestic law globally. So as Janet said, kind of uh, predecessor focused on the international level, we were looking more at that domestic level. So the idea was to try and create an authoritative database of relevant constitutional provisions, laws, cases, things like that. So it was actually the most extensive pro bono project in terms of scope that uh, CC has ever undertaken. It was a pretty ambitious goal, as you might imagine. So we, we were aiming at mapping all 193 UN member states. And that analysis was um, undertaken at both the national and sub-federal levels. So all in, once you kind of factor in all of our US states, Swiss cantons, uh, Brazilian states, uh, once all of those were 
taken into account, you're looking about 350 jurisdictions that we were trying to tackle. Now, CC, we were responsible for about 150 of the 193 member states, which brings you to about 300 jurisdictions. And the remaining ones were tackled by Professor Boyd, other law firms, and quite a number of them by Sam. I think uh, you ended up getting some of the more obscure countries that we just couldn't cover. So all in, I think we had something like 90, just over 90 CC employees from about 27 offices were involved. That's from your summer associates to partners, best delivery. We pretty much every aspect of the firm, there were people involved. And that's just people who recorded time to the actual matter. That's not including the swarm of translators and associates and partners globally that kind of use their connections to try and help us find local partners to help cover some of these jurisdictions. So it was a truly kind of global cross-practice project in that way. All in, we had about just over, I think, 100 local law firms also helped out, all giving their time and expertise on this completely pro bono. Uh, some of them in very difficult circumstances. When I was thinking for the session, I was looking back at who helped us. And it was actually quite sobering at times. because We had um, counsel from places like the, the Bahamas who were submitting responses in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma and you'd get these emails apologizing for delays because of power cuts. And we had people in Libya and Afghanistan saying that they, they couldn't fill in certain aspects of it because the libraries were closed. So it was all quite sobering when you consider the ivory towers that we live in normally. Yeah, it was it was quite sobering from that perspective. Um, the process itself, I'm not going to bore you too much with how we actually went about doing it. It's a multi-jurisdictional survey. I think anyone who has worked in corporate law knows what one of those ent entails. But in essence, it, it was quite an iterative process what we were going through. Essentially, each jurisdiction was sent a table to complete that had two parts, one focusing on written laws, one focusing on sort of case laws, applying, interpreting or developing the right within their jurisdiction. Each local council was asked to categorise their jurisdiction as either yes, it recognises the right or no, it doesn't. Or to give a little bit of context, as you can imagine, not every country fits neatly into two buckets in that way. Some of them were no, but maybe it could move in that direction. So things like that. They would give us information on provisions conferring the rights, other potentially relevant provisions, so kind of the wider environmental context. It was a very iterative process, as I mentioned. We went through first level review, second level review, some third level review on some countries. We were doing sense checking, challenging ambiguities, really testing the results that we were getting from local council. Then there'd be kind of QC checks quite a few of them done by myself. I think that was quite a labour-intensive exercise. Um, some of these jurisdictions were really quite simple and easy to go through, other than others required multiple rounds of sort of comments and calls before you could kind of finalise them. And then those results were used by Dr Boyd in a report that he submitted to the UN Human Rights Council back in March 2020, which was sort of the step before the council resolution that um, Janet mentioned earlier. To kind of give you the high level figures, I suppose, because it's uh, I personally find it interesting, of all of these 193 member states, about 80% of them 
already recognised the right in some form in their domestic legislation. It could be done in several different ways. Majority of them were set out in their constitutions. Some of them developed in case law, some of them surprisingly, like um, Italy, you don't really think of Italy developing through case law given its civil law system. But in that jurisdiction, it was the constitutional court that interpreted the right to health to include a right to a healthy environment. That's roughly how we went about doing it from the CC side. I think I have like basically uh, three main observations from both of what you're saying, Jenna and Carla, is, you know, first that I think as we think about these kind of ambitious projects and as we think about, you know, kind of rights being under attack in <laughs> a lot of ways across sort of um, across different jurisdictions, you know, a approach that is being highlighted here is really incrementally building a base of knowledge or a foundation to really make really solid legal arguments. And it sounds like that's essentially a lot of the exercise that, that you guys did and a lot of the effort in working with a lot of these, these teams to examine each one of these, these countries. I was going to say that's essentially true. The idea of us, what we were doing was to gather the raw data to give to Dr. Boyd so that he could turn around and say, the right is already, it already exists in some form in all of these different jurisdictions. So that's what we were trying to do, just give him the evidence to support his case. Right. And, you know, it's just crazy that this right was not recognized, Mm -hmm. but ultimately, uh, like um, you guys were saying earlier, but ultimately the fact that there was this sort of clear result and clear goal to push for at the end of this, I think was, you know, I imagine really helpful in terms of that ultimately being the kind of end goal of this project. And, you know, finally, I just want to note, I mean, just the scale involved here and the level of participation at all different seniority levels. I mean, this is a Mm -hmm. real model I think, for how a large, ambitious pro bono project should look at a law firm to have just a lot of involvement from all different folks, a real whole of firm effort. I mean, that's something that you just don't appreciate when you're reading a press release, for example. I'd agree with that. I mean, we were incredibly fortunate in terms of the sheer number of I mean, there were the people who were actually doing the work and we had a number of volunteers fitting it around their normal commitments, but also in terms of, I mean, the continuous improvement who helped model things that we could present our results in a more user-friendly manner. We had the countless partners, resource managers, associates, all sorts of people finding us resource, finding local councils that could actually help us using their connections in that way. And all of these firms that were willing to do it on a pro bono basis. It was really quite impressive in terms of the firm coming together in that way. Great. And I think, Sam, you know, would you want to give also your perspective on how this research, you know, was utilized? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to pick up on on something that Carla was saying, which is that, you know, for a very long time, advocates at the international level have been trying to get the international community to recognize the existence of this right in some way. Um, You know, these attempts go all the way back to the 90s, and it's been very, very difficult, both for the states who are advancing these arguments, as well as um, other bodies, including the special rapporteurs, to make the case to countries to ensure that there's a strong mandate and a strong majority for support in the General Assembly. And so this kind of research is incredibly valuable, both because of its high-level finding, you know, which is that the vast majority of the world's countries, either through domestic legislation, through judicial decisions, through um, adherence to international treaties, recognize the right. 
one way or another. Um, and it gives a lot of power to people like the Special Rapporteur and to others who are advocating and negotiating for these resolutions to be able to go to meetings with countries and to say, well, you know, your own country has already recognized this right and, and the sky didn't fall in, or are you aware of just how many countries already recognize this right? What we are doing is not so radical. Um, because the way that international law progresses and develops and the way that, whether through hard law and treaties or through soft law and non-binding resolutions such as this one, is always very incremental and, and moves at a very slow pace. So the more that you can build an evidence um, base like this one, it's incredibly helpful. And also just to say that there are very few institutions or organizations in the world who can perform this kind of research. So we're incredibly grateful to, to Clifford Chance and to the other firms who participated in this work. We had White and Case joined in to assist in some of the work. We had smaller and, and regional law firms in a number of jurisdictions that also helped. Because there simply isn't an institution within the UN system that has the resource to be able to research across 193 uh, jurisdictions or, or 350 when you include subnational across a great range of different legal systems, different legal databases, different languages that one requires in order to do that. So this was quite a unique collaboration that is not easy to do and, and we're very, very grateful. I keep just having this idea that you know, when you're reading a report or you're seeing a press release or you're seeing sort of a LinkedIn post, just not realizing the level of effort and time and number of people involved in this. And so, you know, I really appreciate you guys sort of describing all of what was involved here. And, you know, I think, Sam, you were kind of getting into this, too. Um, but, you know, I, I did want to ask, like, what are some of the sort of concrete implications of the resolution? Would you guys want to kind of describe that briefly? Yeah, one of the things I think is really important to recognize here that even though this is a really important development, this recognition of this right to a healthy environment for the first time at this very global level, that UN General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding. So this is important because it means that there is no additional binding or legal obligation on states as a result of this resolution. That said, Resolutions do serve as catalysts for action. And what we, I think Dr. David Boyd, who's the UN Special Rapporteur, has said about this is that he hopes that there's a trickle-down effect. So the fact that we now have this recognition of, of a right prompts more countries to enshrine the right to a healthy environment in national constitutions or regional treaties. And also, I think importantly, to encourage states to implement those laws. I think that's a really important point that we should keep in mind, which is although this right is on, on the books, as it were, in many states, actually being able to enforce and implement the right can be more difficult. So the hope is here that this recognition of a right at this international level may actually give support to states, but also to those campaigning around the world for environmental rights, for the human rights in the environmental context to be respected and adhered to. One of the points that comes out from this not being legally binding is that, and this point was actually made by a number of states at the time that they voted in favor for the resolution, 
is that this resolution actually reflects more of a political or moral statement. And they identify that there's still considerable difference in opinion as to how this right should be defined. What does it actually mean, implemented and enforced? I think one good example is the United States gave an explanation of position on the right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environmental resolution. And it specifically said that it's the adoption of this resolution. It's not legally binding and it's not a statement of current international law because international law doesn't yet establish a right. It specifically pointed out that there really is no shared understanding of what the basis of the right would be and what its scope would entail. But it did also state that it looked forward to working with other states to exchange views to develop an understanding in this regard. So, you know, there is this ambition to keep talking about the issues. And the United States also pointed out that the resolution doesn't create any legally binding requirements on the United States or create a private right of action under US law. So the US was one of, the United States was one of many countries that actually sort of qualified how they viewed this resolution. And I appreciate that, Janet. But, you know, as I'm, as you're describing that, I just kept thinking that how important it is to articulate fundamental rights and that people are owed these fundamental rights. You know, I think especially as we look to, for example, the political environment in the U.S. post the the Dobbs decision, for example, and completely other fields. But, you know, how important it is that we have some articulation of what fundamental rights are and that, you know, the law and whether it's sort of passed in, in legislation or whether it's it's then comes up in later legal cases should then follow what society would recognize as fundamental rights, as would hopefully be the case here to the fundamental right to a healthy environment. The UN resolution gives a lot of support and traction to other processes that are going on all over the world in terms of recognizing environmental crises, including climate change, as a human rights issue. So the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, for example, heard its first ever contentious case grounded in a standalone right to a healthy environment. Um, and certainly many of the representations that were made to the court in that case referenced this resolution as part of their support, obviously not as a freestanding legal argument, but as, as part of a an observation of a general trend towards the justiciability of these issues and their justiciability as human rights issues. And I think also, you know, as Janet mentioned, it, it gives a lot of political ammunition to groups who are, who are trying to seek vindication of their rights. And just contextually, I think it's important to note just how dangerous it is in many parts of the world to be an environmental defender. Um, it's estimated that more than 200 environmental defenders were killed last year in the course of, of trying to protect their lands or their communities. And that's not to mention, of course, many defenders who were assaulted or tortured or denied freedom of assembly or expression. Um, so giving recognition to these issues at the international level through a human rights framing, I think is really powerful and really gives a lot of support to those organizations who are trying to secure the rights and freedoms of environmental defenders and ultimately the environment itself. And that's, that's also a really helpful impact of resolutions like this. It's one step along the road, I think, to many other actions. 
that's incredible. I think, you know, on that note, you know, I, I don't know if there's, I think that is really bringing home just how important this resolution has been and the work that has gone into that. Great. Any, any sort of last observations before we wrap up? Really, as Sam was pointing out, this is one of you know, a flurry of legal developments around rights and the environment. And these are happening both at the domestic level, for example, with New Yorkers voting to amend the state's constitution last year to explicitly protect New Yorkers' fundamental right to clean air, clean water and a healthful environment. But also at the international level, we see ongoing work on this issue. And for example, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child is actually looking at the rights specifically of children in relation to the environment. So that's under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child with a specific focus on climate change. So this certainly wasn't the end of the road. There is a lot going on and a lot more analysis and thinking going on about how human rights and the environment fit together. And I think as we've all spoken about during the course of this podcast, these issues are really important given that issues around climate change and environmental degradation and biodiversity are increasingly part of the national and international focus. Okay, with that, thank you very much for joining, guys. And thanks to the listeners. Um, as mentioned, this is looks like this is going to be our last episode, at least with me hosting. It's been a great run, and I really appreciate the privilege to have done this. And thanks for listening in. On this uh, Clifford Chance podcast feed, you can, of course, find great episodes going forward still. So please subscribe and follow Clifford Chance on LinkedIn. And... Um, Thanks very much, all. The content of this podcast does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. Specific legal advice about your specific circumstances should always be sought separately before taking any action. Mm-hmm.